Okay, turn with me to Matthew chapter 9, and we are going to begin studying verses 18 to 26. Matthew 9, 18 to 26. It says, While he was saying these things to them, a synagogue official came and bowed down before him and said, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. Jesus got up and began to follow him, and so did his disciples. And a woman who had been suffering from a hemorrhage for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his cloak, for she was saying to herself, If I only touch his garment, I will get well. But Jesus, turning and seeing her, said, Daughter, take courage. Your faith has made you well. At once the woman was made well. When Jesus came into the official's house and saw the flute players and the crowd in noisy disorder, he said, Leave, for the girl has not died, but is asleep. And they began laughing at him. But when the crowd had been sent out, he entered and took her by the hand, and the girl got up. This news spread throughout all that land. This is a passage about Jesus' power over death. As you know, we're living in a dying world where all of us face the inevitability of death. Uh, we are deteriorating humans in a deteriorating world. Uh, our world is marked by tragedy, sorrow, sadness, death, and dying. Uh, since the fall of man, as recorded in Genesis 3, there has been a curse on the earth and that curse has sent the earth and all of its inhabitants spiraling into an endless cycle of tears and pain and sickness and death. In fact, we face these things constantly. All of you, all you have to do is turn on the news or scan through it on your computer or tablet, and you will see reports involving death over and over and over again. Uh, death by disease, death by drownings, by vehicle crashes, by shootings. The stories are endless. In my former career as a law enforcement officer, I saw death hundreds upon hundreds of times by dozens and dozens of different ways. Uh, I've seen it in homicides and suicides. I've seen it in plane crashes, car crashes, motorcycle crashes, drownings, fires, overdoses. I've seen it in people of every age, the elderly, those in the prime of life, and teenagers, and sadly, I've seen it in small children. I've seen death in so many varieties of ways it almost boggles my mind when I think about it. And in my years of ministry here at the church, I've seen the passing of several of our dear friends through the years, far too many or to even remember or to count. I, I stood by the bedsides of godly men in our church, uh, like Hal Brenner, Harry Nichols, Joseph Smith, as they entered the presence of their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And just within this year, Jack Jenkins and I stood with Terry at the bedside where his dear Susie had just unexpectedly gone home to be with Jesus. And we just experienced the loss of little 10-year-old Lila Goody here at Lakeside. Death is horrible. Death is stunning, but that's what sin has done to this world. Death is the curse in action. Is it any wonder that Jesus reacted the way he did when he came to the grave of Lazarus? John 11.33 says, When Jesus saw her, that is Mary, weeping, and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled. And then it says in verse 35, Jesus wept. Uh, the, these were people he loved. This was deep pain. He was hurting, and it wasn't because of what had happened to Lazarus, because he knew that he was about to raise him back to life. But in the infinity of his mind, he could look throughout all of the ages and all of the eons of time to see all the consequences of sin and feel the pain that it would bring to mankind. And as one who could sympathize with his children beyond anything that we can conceive, it hurt him deeply, and so he wept. See, God didn't want it to be so. Sin was not God's purpose for man. 
All things in the world were created for the good of man and the blessing of man, but man sinned. And so the Old Testament prophets say sin will run its course and then God will reverse the curse. God will turn it all around. And we come to the end of the book of Revelation in Revelation 21.4. And we read this. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. Who can do that? Who can reverse the curse? Who can destroy de disease and pain and sorrow and tears and death? The prophets said that there would come a Messiah, a prince, a king, and he would do it. He would have the power to bring back wholeness to life. And so when Jesus came into the world, he demonstrated that power. Through the fulfillment of those prophecies, in, uh, though, though their fulfillment is yet future, the one who will fulfill them has sufficiently demonstrated his ability to do so. And so when Jesus came into the world, for all intents and purposes, he banished disease from Israel. He raised the dead. He forgave sin. He multiplied food. He calmed storms. He cast out demons. He demonstrated all of that during his first coming and, that, and was saying he, by demonstrating that, he was foretelling that all of those things will be true of the great and glorious coming kingdom. The miracles of Jesus were the verification of his power to reverse the curse, the verification of his power to establish the kingdom. But death looms on the horizon in every individual's life. How marvelous it is to realize then that Jesus came to conquer death. Turn over for a moment to John chapter 5. John chapter 5. Let's look at several verses there. John 5. Let's, let's look beginning, start with verse 21. Jesus says, For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. Verse 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. Verse 26, For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave, gave to the Son also to have life in himself. So Jesus told them that God had given him power over life and that was both physical and spiritual life in john 11 25 and 26 he said i'm the resurrection and the life he who believes in me will live even if he dies and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die in other words jesus claimed to have the power over death he said the father has power over death and he gave him the power over death and in John 14, 19, he says, because I live, you will live also. Now, so far, Matthew has shared with us about the various kinds of miracles Jesus did that demonstrated his authority over sickness and disease, over demons and over the realm of nature. But listen carefully. When Jesus healed that leper, when he healed Peter's mother-in-law, when he healed the paralytic, he did not heal them for their sake only, but so that he might demonstrate his power and authority as the Messiah. And all of the other people he healed, he didn't heal them because they all had faith, because they didn't, not by any stretch of the imagination. He didn't heal all of them because they were all worthy. He healed all of them in order that he might show that he could heal all disease, that there was no limit to his capacity. In chapter 9, verse 35 of Matthew, it says Jesus was going through all the cities and the villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. In chapter 11, verse 5, the blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And so it was that he demonstrated that he was God, the Messiah, the King. Now so far, as you know, we've seen in chapters 8 and 9 that Matthew gives us nine miracles that he focuses on in 
order to explain Jesus' authority over the physical, the spiritual, and the moral world. And he gives them to us in three groups of three miracles. In chapter 8, the first group of miracles dealt with disease. And then the second set of three dealt with disorder, the storm, the demoniacs, and sin. And now we come to the third group, and now he deals with death. So Matthew presents Jesus' authority over those three areas, disease, disorder, and death. This is the climax. Jesus can raise the dead. So there are three more miracles. Actually, the first one has a miracle within a miracle. But there are three separate miracles. The first one raising the dead. The second one giving sight to the blind. The third giving speech to a mute demon-possessed man. Now, the last two may seem less marvelous than resurrection from the dead. And you may wonder why Matthew would include restoring sight and speech in a section that deals with his power of, over death. I'm not sure I can be dogmatic about the answer, except that it would be a wonderful illustration of Jesus' resurrection power. Uh, first, he raises the whole person from the dead, and then he shows how he can give life to the dead parts of a person. Uh, he, he, who gives, he who can give sight to dead eyes and give speech to a dead tongue can also raise the dead. Uh, and so he has power over that which is dead. Back in the late 1960s, Canadian scientist G.B. Hardy decided that he wanted to examine whether or not anyone had ever conquered death. Here's what he wrote, quote, When I looked at religion, I said, there are but two essential requirements. First, has anyone cheated death and proved it? Second, is it available to me? Here is the complete record. Confucius' tomb, occupied. Buddha's tomb, occupied. Mohammed's tomb, occupied. Jesus' tomb, empty. Argue as you will, there's no point in following a loser. Then I asked the second question, did he make a way for me to do it? I opened the Bible and he said, because I live, you will live also. End quote. That's a Canadian scientist by the name of G.B. Hardy. So that's the question. Jesus, can you conquer death? Are you the one who can reverse the curse? Do you, as it says in Revelation 1.18, have the keys of death and Hades? If you are the one, then show us. Demonstrate it. And the answer is yes, Jesus has power over death. And nowhere is that seen more clearly than by him raising this dead girl in this situation. Now let's get a few basic notes out of the way as we approach the text. It has a miracle within a miracle. But the miracle inside the miracle of resurrection, that is the one dealing with the woman's hemorrhage, is really part of the resurrection miracle because it provides the delay that is necessary for the little girl's death to occur and to make the resurrection as dramatic as possible. But as we go through this, not only will we see Jesus' power over death, we will also see how Jesus responded to people in need. All of his tenderness, all of his sensitivity, all of his gentleness, all of his openness, all that he is in loving kindness is here and all of his power is here. We get a marvelous glimpse of how he dealt with people. We see in particular that Jesus was accessible. He was touchable. He was impartial as well as powerful. Of the two primary people in this account other than Jesus, one was an influential ruler, the other was an outcast. One was wealthy and the other was poor. And yet the one thing they had in common was that they both had great needs for which only Jesus could provide the help they needed. Now as I was looking at this passage, I noticed that three se the three segments all have to do with touch. The synagogue official requested Jesus touch his daughter and heal her. The woman with the hemorrhage touched Jesus, and then Jesus touched the little girl and raised her back to life. So that's what I'm going to use as an outline. First, we see the requested touch, second, the unexpected touch, and finally, the resurrecting touch. Uh, let's begin with the requested touch, verses 18 and 19. It says, while he was saying these things to them, a synagogue official came and bowed down before him and said, My daughter has just died, but come and 
Lay your hand on her and she will live. Jesus got up and began to follow him, and so did his disciples. Now remember what's taking place here. Jesus has calmed the sea and the wind, and then he had cast the demons out of the two men of Gadara and sent them into a large herd of pigs. He returns back to Capernaum, the little village on the very northernmost point of the Sea of Galilee where Peter lived, and he's staying in Peter's house, and a large crowd would listen to him and then suddenly, uh, as they're listening to him teach, four guys tear apart Peter's roof and lower their paralyzed friend down into the room in front of Jesus, who forgives his sin and heals him. Then Jesus calls Matthew to follow him, and Matthew does, and then invites all of his sinner friends to come and meet Jesus at a big banquet at his home. And after the banquet, Jesus gets into a discussion with the Pharisees about coming to save sinners and not self-righteous people like them. And then he explains to the disciples of John the Baptist why he and his disciples don't abide by all of the ritualistic fasts that the rabbinical traditions required. And with that as a background, we come to verse 18. While he was saying these things to them. In other words, while he is finishing up talking with the scribes and the Pharisees, answering them and answering the disciples of John the Baptist, it says a synagogue official came and bowed down before him. Now, once again, the New American Standard translators left out the word behold. Matthew uses that word to say in effect, now watch this or pay attention to this. It's a marker that what he is about to say is unusual and unexpected. In fact, while the New American Standard deletes the word behold, it adds the word synagogue in there in order to clarify what kind of ruler this man was, but it actually isn't in the text of Matthew's Gospel. The sentence actually reads, while he was saying these things to them, behold, an official came and bowed down before him. Now, both Mark and Luke tell us that this man was Jairus. Uh, Matthew only adds, as I said, that he was an official, and he uses a word which means ruler, magistrate, judge, or official. However, both Mark and Luke use a word which tells us that Jairus was the chief official, the highest-ranking ruler of the synagogue in Capernaum. He would have been responsible for the total operation and administration of the synagogue and supervised the worship services and also oversaw the work of all the other synagogue elders, which included teaching, adjudicating disputes in the community and other such leadership duties. Now, why is this then such a startling, shocking, amazing thing? Because Jairus as the leading representative of the religious establishment in Capernaum, would be expected to lead the charge in opposition to Jesus in that area. You know by now that the religious establishment was dead set against Christ. They fought him tooth and nail all the way through his life. And this guy was looked upon as the epitome of that opposition. He may have even been a Pharisee. We don't know. But he had a lot of peer pressure to be a faithful Jewish traditional religionist. And yet, he comes to Jesus. Now you might expect Jairus to come and say, Teacher, I'm the chief elder of the synagogue. I'd like to speak to you privately for a couple of minutes. But that's not what he did. He didn't try to protect himself at all from public criticism. It's amazing. Look at verse 18. He came and bowed down before him. Now that word in the Greek means to worship. It means to prostrate oneself before someone in submission and worship. It's the same word that Mark used to describe the Gadarene demoniac falling down, bowing down before Jesus in submission to his authority. The word is used 60 times in the New Testament, and 52, times, 52 of those times, the word clearly means to worship. Now remember, in the minds of the Jewish religious establishment, 
Jesus is a heretic. The scribes and the Pharisees are after him. But this guy does what someone in that culture did only to a king or a deity. Someone who was divine or to a king who claimed to be divine. You didn't do this to human beings unless they were in some sense supernatural. And Matthew uses this word 13 times because it fits a king so well, doesn't it? Jairus worshipped Jesus. Well, whatever made him do that? How could you ever get someone like him in his position to do that? I'll tell you how. It's very easy. Verse 18. He said to Jesus, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. Now Matthew's account is brief. Mark and Luke's accounts are larger. Uh, Luke tells us that the first time Jairus spoke to Jesus, he said, my daughter is dying. But while Jesus was headed toward his house, someone came from his house and informed him that his daughter had died. So he shouldn't bother Jesus any further. So apparently, Matthew records only the second statement by Jairus to Jesus, in which he said to Jesus, my daughter has just died. Uh, Matthew just sort of condenses it all, leaving out some of the preliminaries. Mark and Luke tell us that Jairus' daughter was 12 years old. In the Jewish culture, 12 years of age was the age that a girl became considered to be a woman. For a boy, it was 13 years old. At that point, he was considered to be a man. It's still the same to this day. A, a Jewish girl has her bat mitzvah at 12 years old, and a Jewish boy has his bar mitzvah at 13. Uh, so this young girl had just reached the flower of womanhood in that culture. Twelve years of sunshine turned into the shadow of death. Why was Jairus willing to publicly go to Jesus? Because at this point he doesn't care about social pressure. He didn't care about prestige. He didn't care about the religious establishment. His daughter was dead. And there were no resources within his system to deal with that. And I believe that God had already been working on his heart because his faith is incredible. Remember, in a previous lesson, we briefly mentioned that Luke records that one day Jesus had cast a demon out of a demon-possessed man in the synagogue of Capernaum, and everyone there was stunned at Jesus' power and authority. Do you realize Jairus would have been present when that happened that day. He would have seen Jesus' power and authority over the supernatural world with his own eyes. And now he says, come and lay your hand on her and she will live. There's not a trace of doubt in that statement, is there? That's real faith. He swallowed his pride. He turned his back on social pressure. He said goodbye to the religious establishment and he came to Jesus and he fell flat on his face in worship and says, my daughter has just died. Now let me tell you two things about Jairus. First of all, he had a deep need and that's why people come to Christ. If you don't have a need, you're not going to come. Within the past year, I had an old friend from who I graduated from high school with, tell me on Facebook, I have no need of God and Jesus Christ. I find that to be unnecessary. Well, if you don't have any need for Christ, you're not going to come. And we should pray that God will work in your life so that you do have a need for him. We should pray that you will be in deep need, that you will know pain, that you would know desperation, that you would know the loss of all your resources so that it will drive you to Christ. Uh, it's apparent to me that Jairus already believed in the power of Christ. He was probably overawed by Jesus from what he'd seen him do, but up until this point, he had probably been somewhat hesitant to commit to Jesus. But now when his daughter is dying and then died, he came in desperation. His motive wasn't totally pure. That is, he didn't come simply because of the wonder of Jesus Christ. 
He didn't come simply because he had some great love for Jesus. He came because he was hurting and he was hurting deeply. And he knew a pain he'd never experienced before in his life. There was a hurting unlike anything else and there was no relief for it. His heart was crushed. It's people with need that come. Sometimes it's because of great tragedy, such as in this case. And that's why the gospels preach to the poor and the sick and the weak and the captives and the prisoners. And so he came. And even though his motive was, you could say, a little bit selfish, because his first concern was for his daughter's life and his own despair, Jesus was available to meet his need. The second thing about Jairus that brought him to Jesus was his faith. He really did believe Jesus had the power to do this, and that is some marvelous faith. You remember the miracle back in chapter 8 where Jesus healed the centurion slave boy who was paralyzed? Centurion said, just say the word and my servant will be healed. And Jesus said, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. That man had great enough faith to believe that Jesus could heal his servant with a word. If that's the greatest faith that he'd seen in Israel, what kind of faith is it to believe that Jesus could just put a hand on a dead person and raise him back from the dead when it had never been done before? Jairus had incredible faith. It's even better than Martha's faith. Martha said to Jesus, "Only, oh, if you'd only been here when he was sick, you could have done something, but now he's dead and it's too late. She didn't even believe in resurrection power. And so I believe Jairus had the faith to be redeemed, and I think that before the day was out, he entered the kingdom of God. How did Jesus respond to his need and his faith? I love this. The, the Greek says, and Jesus got up and followed him. He didn't say, well, hold on for a few minutes. I'm kind of busy with this huge crowd right now. I'll get to you as soon as I can. No, he simply got up and followed him. You know, sometimes the Lord does want us to meet an individual need. In Acts 8, Philip was holding tremendous evangelistic meetings in Samaria. There were huge crowds of people coming and many were being uh, saved. And suddenly the Lord interrupts all of that ministry to the crowds and says, Philip, get up and go south to Gaza. And Acts 8.27 says, so he got up and went. And here comes a eunuch riding in a chariot and he leads him to Christ. And then when it's all over, the Holy Spirit picked him right back up, flew him right back to where he'd been before. There are times when there is a tremendous need in an individual's life. Jesus was always sensitive to that. What does it say in John 6, 37? The one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. Jesus was accessible to the crowd and he was available to the individual. He was willing to temporarily put a seemingly larger ministry aside in order to concentrate on one person. So Jesus and his disciples start going along with Jairus to his house so that Jesus can touch Jairus' daughter as Jairus had requested. But Mark tells us that a large crowd was following him and pressing in on him. So this mass of humanity starts moving towards Jairus' house with this big crush of people surrounding Jesus and pressing in on him. And that brings us to the unexpected touch. The unexpected touch. Look at verses 20 to 22. And a woman who had been suffering from a hemorrhage for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his cloak. For she was saying to herself, If I only touch his garment, I will get well. But Jesus, turning and seeing her, said, Daughter, take courage. Your faith has made you well. At once the woman was made well. So as Jesus is going to Jairus' house, his attention is called to still another single individual, an interruption that becomes an opportunity. There's a woman in the crowd who's been suffering from a hemorrhage for 12 years. Just an interesting little tidbit here. 
Jairus' daughter had known 12 years of life and laughter with her family, while this woman had known 12 years of misery and ostracism from her family. Mark tells us that she had endured a lot of different treatments at the hands of several physicians without any success at all. In fact, she'd spent all of her money trying to find a cure. So she's now at the point of desperation. She's sick with a terrible condition. She's now impoverished and nothing more can be done. And so she hears about Jesus. Obviously, she had heard that he was a great miracle worker and could heal people of the worst kinds of disease. And so she reasons, if I only touch his garment, I will get well. And so, and here's another one of those behold statements that Matthew loves to use, but the New American Standard translators chose to leave out. It says, and behold, in other words, and here's a startling, amazing thing. A woman who had been suffering with a hemorrhage for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his cloak. So this woman touches Jesus' cloak in the middle of this huge crowd where everyone is crowding in and pressing up against him. And the word that Matthew uses here, translated touch, doesn't simply mean to lightly touch someone. It means to grab, to cling to. Uh, it's used in John 20, 17, where Jesus told Mary Magdalene, Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. This woman made sure she got a good grab on the fringe of Jesus' cloak, on the blue tassels that identified him as a rabbi. Now, what was this hemorrhage that she had? Well, basically, for 12 years, this woman had some kind of uterine disorder probably called by a fibroid tumor in her uterus, something that could be readily cured today by surgery. Uh, but in the Jewish culture, she was considered perpetually unclean, unable to be with others, unable to go to the synagogue or the temple. And Dr. Luke tells us she could not be healed by anyone. Her condition was incurable. So from the Jewish point of view, you can't imagine anything worse than being a woman with a constant vaginal hemorrhage. It was a horrible situation for any woman to have in that culture. You see, the Talmud, the Jewish codification of law, gave 11 different cures for such a condition that doctors were to try. Some of them were like tonics and herbal things and astringents. Several of them were very superstitious. For example... One said that you had to carry the ashes of an ostrich egg in a linen bag in the summer and transfer them to a cotton bag in the winter. Another said that you had to carry around on your person a barley corn that had been found in the dung of a white female donkey. That's really strange. So those were the kinds of superstitious things that were done in order to try to deal with this kind of a problem. But the horror of the disease was because of what is stated back in Leviticus 15, verses 25 to 27. Listen to this. It says, Now if a woman has a discharge of her blood many days, not at the period of her menstrual impurity, or if she has a discharge beyond that period, all the days of her impure discharge she shall continue as though in her menstrual impurity. She is unclean. Any bed on which she lies all the days of her discharge shall be to her like her bed at menstruation, and everything on which she sits shall be unclean, like her uncleanness at that time. Likewise, whoever touches them shall be unclean, and shall wash his clothes and bathe in water, and be unclean until evening. And then once she had gone seven days without any bleeding, she was then ceremonially clean, and was required to offer a sacrifice of two turtle doves or pigeons. So that was the law of God given to the nation of Israel. So you can imagine what would happen to a woman who had a constant bleeding problem, one that went beyond her normal monthly menstruation. She was cut off from or excommunicated from the synagogue. Her husband could use that to divorce her and take the children away from her. She would be ostracized by everyone in the community uh, who knew of her situation. 
And this dear woman had lived with that condition for 12 years. And to make things worse, she'd spent all of her money on physicians, probably all of them, a few charlatans in there. So she's now penniless. Such a tragic, sad situation. And so she comes and touches Jesus. Why? Same two reasons. She had a deep need, and she believed that he could heal her. Think about this. Her sense of need was so great that, like Jairus, she lost all sense of propriety for what she was permitted to do in that society. She was desperate. The person who says, well, I'd like to come to Christ, but I'm not going to sit down with you here in this public place and pray with you because others might see us. They just aren't desperate enough. When you get to the desperation point, you don't care who's watching you. You will come to Jesus. There's a sense of desperation. This woman was there. And so it says she touched the fringe of his cloak. Now in Numbers 15 and Deuteronomy 22, the Jews were told that they were to make for themselves tassels on the corners of their garments and that they shall put on the tassel of, of each corner a cord of blue. That's the word used here in, that in Matthew. That's what he's referring to. Uh, the Greek word translated fringe refers to the tassel that the Jews had on their garments. They weaved a blue thread through their garment, and on each corner, the blue cord would be made into a tassel. And those tassels were woven in a certain configuration, uh, some with seven turns of blue cord around it, and others with eight turns of blue cord. And there was a certain significance to that, and without going into all the detail, the tassels and cords represented faithfulness and loyalty to the Word of God and holiness to the Lord. So every Jew was to be reminded uh, and by them and testify to others that with these tassels that he belonged to the people of God. We have some of that same kind of thing today, uh, if you think about it. Some people wear a little cross on a necklace or an earring, or they might wear an ichthus charm or a ring. Uh, these days in our culture, they often have tattoos of such things. Um, and they serve as both a reminder to the wearer and as a proclamation to others of who they belong to. And that's what this was for them. But, with cons but consistent with their typical hypocrisy and pretension, Matthew 23.5 tells us that the Pharisees lengthened the tassels of their garments. Uh, we have the same thing today. Sometimes you see people wearing a cross around their neck that's so large they can almost hide behind it. Uh, it's very pretentious and ostentatious. Uh, you might be interested to know that during the times of the persecution of the Jews in Europe, uh, Orthodox Jews still wore the tassels. They just weaved them into their underwear so they couldn't be seen in public. Uh, and in contemporary times today, you will still find them on the prayer shawl of an Orthodox Jew. And so as Jesus moved along with the crowd thronging around him, it says in verse 21 that this lady was saying to herself, if I only touch his garment, I will get well. Those words, was saying, is in the active voice. That is, she kept on saying to herself. She kept saying it over and over to herself as she struggled to get through the crowd to get close to Jesus. <coughs> she didn't want to be exposed in her embarrassment and shame. She just wanted to reach out and touch. But she had the faith to believe that that was all that was necessary because she believed that Jesus had the power to heal her with only a touch. She just wanted to touch his garment. When the godly Scottish physician of the 1800s, Sir James Simpson, was dying, a friend wished to comfort him and said, well, James, Soon you will be able to rest on the bosom of Jesus. And Simpson was one of the foremost and renowned physicians of his time, but he was a very humble man. And so he responded, I don't know that I can quite do that, but I do think I, make, I can take hold of his garment. Uh, that's all this lady wanted to do. She knew Jesus could heal her if only she could touch him. 
So she finally struggles through the crowd and she grabs that tassel. And what happened? She was instantly healed. You say, but Matthew says that Jesus turned around and talked to her first and then she was healed. Well, Matthew gives us an abbreviated summary of what happened. Let's go over to Mark's account in Mark 5. He explains what occurred in much more detail. Actually, we're going to start in Mark 4, verse 25. Right, is it Mark 4 or Mark 5? I'm, i got two different things in my notes here. Is it 520? 525. Okay. It says, A woman who had had a hemorrhage for 12 years and had endured much at the hands of many physicians and had spent all that she had and was not helped at all, but rather had grown worse. After hearing about Jesus, she came up in the crowd behind him and touched his cloak, for she thought, If I just touch his garments, I will get well. Immediately the flow of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. Immediately Jesus, perceiving in himself that the power, the power proceeding from him had gone forth, turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my garment? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing in on you, and you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see the woman who had done this. But the woman, fearful, fearing and trembling, aware of what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. So she was immediately healed. Mark is the gospel of immediately. Uh, he uses that word 40 times, uh, more than twice as many times as any other gospel. He wants his readers to understand that when Jesus healed, the results were immediate. And it says that Jesus perceived that power proceeding from him had gone forth. Now that re reads like Jesus didn't know that he was going to heal that woman and that her healing was sort of involuntary on his part. But he always did what the Father willed for him to do. And because he himself was fully God, he knew that that woman was going to touch him and ordained that she would be healed. But in his humanity, he perceived the power leave his body. And so this woman was healed of her blood flow, and she could feel it in her body. And then he turns and asks, who touched my garments? Now the disciples are incredulous that he would ask such a question. Luke tells us that, of course, which disciple would you expect to say this to him? Peter. That's who Luke says. Peter was the one who said, Master, the crowds are crowding and pressing in on you. In other words, Lord, are you kidding? What do you mean who touched you? People are clawing at you all over the place. And in Luke 8.46, it tells us Jesus said, But someone did touch me, for I was aware the power had gone out from me. He, he knew that there had been one special touch from all of those people who were surrounding him and that the power for healing had gone out from him. Luke tells us that when the woman saw that she had not escaped notice, she came trembling and fell down before him and declared in the presence of all the people the reason why she had touched him and that she had now been immediately healed. Mark tells us the same thing. She's scared to death. She's afraid that Jesus might be upset with her. But notice his words back in our text in Matthew 9.22. He says, Daughter, take courage. Your faith has made you well. That word daughter is so personal. It's familial. He's calling her his child. And the word translated take courage is the same word Jesus used to the paralytic who was lowered through the roof back in verse 2. It means don't be afraid. There's nothing to fear. Be confident. It's an expression of compassion, encouragement. She has nothing from which, about which to be fearful. She had faith, didn't she? She says, if I can just touch his tassel. You say, well, that's not exactly mature faith. That's almost like superstition. It's almost like belief in magic. That's true. But listen, Jesus said, if you have the faith the size of a mustard seed, you'll say to this mountain, move up from here to there and it'll move and nothing will be impossible for you. That's Matthew 17, 20. The lesson to learn is that the Lord will take inadequate faith, like this woman's that is somehow somewhat superstitious, and he'll move it 
from there to saving faith. It's important that she understand, it was important she understood that she wasn't healed by some kind of magic touch, but rather by the sovereign work of God. He had to bring her into the fullness of a relationship. And that's what we see next. This is really good. It's another example of why there's so much more to be seen in the Greek text than we see in our English text. Now, all three synoptic gospels record the same words, but I want us to look at Mark's account in Mark 5.34 because he adds a phrase at the end that will help clarify things for us. Notice what Jesus tells this woman after she fearfully confesses to why she touched him and what happened to her as a result. Jesus says, daughter, your faith has made you well. Now I'm going to say something here that will probably surprise you, but before you brand me a heretic, hear me out. There's much more to this woman's healing than simply her faith. Her healing was a sovereign act of God. Jesus healed multitudes of people who had no faith, but I'm not convinced that this statement by Jesus has anything specific to do with her physical healing. Okay, let me explain why I say that. You say, but Bruce, it says here that her faith made her well. I know. The common Greek word for healing is the word eolomai. Right here, eolomai. That's the term Mark uses in the phrase at the end of the sentence where it says, be healed of your affliction. That's why I wanted you to look at Mark's account. In Luke's account, the good doctor uses the word Therapuo, uh, from which we get our word therapeutic. But in this statement, what Jesus actually says is your faith has saved you. And the word is sozo, which means to save, to rescue. And the same word is used in all three of the synoptic gospels. It's the common word used in the Greek New Testament to refer to salvation. Now, admittedly, it doesn't have to mean spiritual salvation. It can refer to physical salvation from something. But in this case, I believe it has a double meaning. Her faith not only saved her physically from her condition, but it also saved her spiritually. I think there's a redemptive element in her faith. She just wanted to grab onto his tassel with a faith that bordered on suspicion, but she truly believed that he was such a great healer that if she only touched him, she would be healed. But Jesus wouldn't leave it at that. He drew her out and he saved her. It's kind of like the man who said, I do believe, help my unbelief. In other words, take me from where I am with my little faith and move me to saving faith. When the blind beggar Bartimaeus asked Jesus to restore his faith, Jesus replied, go your way, your faith has made you well. Again, the word is used in conjunction with Bartimaeus' faith. He had repeatedly called Jesus the son of David, which was a common title for the Messiah. So it seems probable that his being made well like that of this woman with the hemorrhage included spiritual salvation as well as physical healing. Let me show you one more example. Turn over to Luke 7 for a moment. Luke 7 Let's not. I'm looking at the time. We will save that. We will stop right there. Um, I would like to, love to, but uh, there's just too much here. And you're going to have to wait a while to get the full explanation. Yes. Uh, Anyway, with where we're at right now, any comments or questions? Everybody tracking with me okay? You're pointing. Okay. This goes ahead. You haven't reached this yet. Uh, but at the end of uh, Matthew, Jesus, in his own words, tells the ruler, Jairus, not to tell anybody about the healing. And you know, that's said several times in the Bible, Jesus would heal people and tell them not to tell. And then some people we told them to tell. Mm -hmm. And it's wondering why. Well, 
I wish you'd been with us prior to this, Randy, because I've explained that a couple of times along the way. Uh, sometimes it's because, uh, like in the case of the gathering demoniac, he told him to go tell. He was, but that was primarily a Gentile area. So he sent him out as a missionary to what was primarily a Gentile area. But with the Jews, he did, did not do that as much because his time had not yet come. And he was also not, he, he was revealing himself as the Messiah, but they weren't receiving him. So he was not yet yeah, going, he, his time had not yet come. John uses that over and over and over again. His time, his hour had not yet come. So um, we'll get to it again when we get to that. But yes. I've often heard it said, and you just kind of reiterated it, that the Greek language is somewhat richer and deeper in mm -hmm. which to read and understand the Right. When you do your studies, do you read it in Greek or do you pick out select words that just kind of help embellish the point? I look at the Greek text. I do read the Greek text and then the words that are important, I tell you about. Is it difficult to try to read it? In of course, especially when it's not your original language. I, I studied it for years in seminary, uh, but uh, it's not your original language. And I've been out of seminary for so long now that I was just thinking today, it's been 22 years since I've been in seminary, uh, that, uh, let's face it, at my age you lose a bit. Uh, but I, so I have Greek helps. I have some highly excellent computerized Greek helps that help me a lot. But uh, no, I've often described the Greek language to English language as difference between looking at black and white television and looking at 4K high D color. <laughs> That's the difference. The, the Greek language is like four times larger than the English language in its ability to express. Not, we're not talking about the technical stuff. English grows with all its technical additions all the time. But uh, so uh, but the basic, so yes, you are missing a lot. John 20 is my favorite passage. Uh, let me stop this.